Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacked.com. Now on with the show. Three, two... One, let's go. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. Today, I speak with Pim Van Fleet, head of conservative equities at Robico. It will come as no surprise to those who know Pim's work that we spend the majority of this conversation talking about conservative investing. Specifically, we discuss the low volatility anomaly. But rather than rehash the usual high-level talking points, I wanted to dig into the more practical considerations. For example, how are low volatility and low beta different? How do selection and allocation effects contribute to the low volatility anomaly? Are low volatility and quality actually different anomalies? And how should we think about the influence of currency in global low volatility portfolios? While Pim has nearly three dozen research publications to his name, he provides the balanced perspective of a practitioner, acknowledging the practical limitations of managing money in the real world. Please enjoy my conversation with Pim Van Fleet. Tim, welcome to the show. Very excited to have you here. Long overdue. I think I've actually been intending on trying to get you on for a couple seasons now. And for one reason or another, it hasn't worked out. My fault, mainly. So very excited to finally have you on the show. I think I just mentioned to you right before we started recording, I think this is the most questions I've ever prepared for a guest. So I hope you're ready for a long one. I'm ready. All right. Well, my guess is most of the listeners are going to know who you are, but just for some table setting, can you maybe give us a little bit of background about who you are? Yeah, that's good. So my name is Pim van Vliet, pronounced as Vliet. So that's Dutch. I'm from Holland. We say if it ain't Dutch, it ain't much. That's our joke. But it's a very small country, very international, trading, research, rich country. My background is I'm a PhD in financial economics. I like science and I like investing and combining the two. I work for a Dutch firm, a pure play asset manager, 19 years old, founded in the, in the 20s. It's called Robeco. There we have quite a big of a quant part of our business, so where we use rules-based models based on factors. I'm the head of conservative equities, so that's our approach to low-fall defensive investing, multi-billion strategies, global emerging and I also find time to do research, sometimes publishing in some of the more applied academic journals like the Financial Analyst Journal or other journals. Well, it won't be a surprise to any listeners. I'm sure that we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about conservative equities. But I actually want to start at a higher level with one of your most popular articles you've written called Global Factor Premiums. And this is an area where Robeco has done a lot of research. I know you focused heavily on the conservative side, but there's a ton of articles that you guys have published about factors at large. And this piece actually looked at, I think it was like somewhere in the mid-20s of global factor premiums across equities, bonds, commodities, and currency markets. I think going back as far as the 1800s, correct me if I'm wrong there, it was, it was a couple hundred years. Let's start with that big picture. To you, what were the most important takeaways and maybe conversely, what were some of the most surprising results of the study? Yeah, that's a very cool study. So it's published in the journal Financial Economics 2021. Did it with Guido and Laurens, my co-authors. You're correct. It's This data sample starts in 1800 and we test 24 factors. What is going on in science is what they call the p-hacking debate. So many of the results presented are false. 
I already noticed during my PSE, but back then there was not much uh, attention given to it. The problem is that many people do, if you do 20 tests, one of them is significant at the 5% level by definition. And believe me, and you know that as well, Corey, many PhD, many students, many researchers do many tests. And then you can also cheat yourself by making up the story later on, which explains these great results. And that's really a plague to find so many studies cannot be replicated. So that's the replication price. And yeah, when you run money on behalf of your clients, you have a fiduciary duty to know what you're doing, that you're not investing their money, their savings on noise and academics making a back test. So this study we set up to do out-of-sample testing and then mostly pre-sample testing because the problem with out-of-sample is that it could be arbitraged away and then still it could be that those factors existed, but they don't exist anymore. So is it really a feature of markets? For that, going pre-sample is very important. And we were doing this study in the midst of what we call a quant winter, and so factors were tough, like value. It was much debated. So we also tested value. And what we found is that in this pre-sample evidence, that the common factors were also working in that century and across all those decades, especially if you combine them. Our value is one of them we tested, and value was also significant in the 19th century. So that gave us the, the impression that value is a feature of markets, although it's not there every year or every month or every five years. So that really struck us from that study, and that gives us lots of confidence, more than whether in any given year factors do good or bad, because that's one observation. Well, 100 years of data, that gives you more and more confidence. So how would you address the pushback maybe that while this pre-sample data is new, it might not be relevant data, that there might be certain limits to arbitrage or T costs that are unaccounted for that make it so that these anomalies persist in the pre-sample data, but it's not something that actually could have been exploited. Yeah, that's a good point. So transaction costs were somewhat higher, although not as high as often assumed. If you dig into the files, they were not much higher than in the 50s of the 20th century. So the limits to arbitrage don't apply. We also look at long-only results. So you can also use factor premiums in a long-only strategy where you basically wait with buying or wait with selling. So that's turnover neutral. So also then you can exploit cross alphas. Yeah, in a way, often people tend to dismiss old historical research that they say, yeah, it's, it was different. And it's a fair point, but dismissing it altogether and not looking at it that's quite extreme. So, of course, this 100 years of data is not one-on-one the same as like the last decade. However, it is quite formative, especially if you look at factor premiums which have long cycles and are driven by human behavior. So more and more research shows that like the value premium is driven by behavior, overestimating growth, overreaction. And for that, yeah, you need long-term data. Just a couple of years is not enough. So, yeah, it's a fair point, but still informative. And it's a good insight coming also at a moment when some people don't believe in some factor premiums anymore, then this is really a, a good sign of confidence that the chance that all factor premiums are just a result of p-hacking is very small, and that gives confidence for the future. One of my favorite tables in the piece is a summary of sharp ratios. And that's not to say sharp ratios are the end-all be-all statistic, but it it shows the sharp ratios for all these different factor premiums over time. And they all had a sharp of less than 0.5. And Cliff Asness has a great quote where he talks about the difference between statistical time, which is sort of what we see in a back test, and we know what's possible on paper versus behavioral time, which is what we live. And I feel like this table should be something that should be, I don't know, put on every institution and advisor's wall just to make them acknowledge decade-long drawdowns can happen. Curious as to your thoughts, given that these sharps are fairly low, how much of factor-based investing ultimately becomes a faith-based endeavor in the short run? Yeah, it's good. So sharp ratios tend to be 0.5, 0.3. The most famous factor is the equity premium. And interestingly, the sharp ratio of equities has been above one in the past decades, especially in the US. How can you beat the S&P 500? Interestingly, this is the moment where you should doubt the equity premium. I hardly find people doubting the equity premium because in the long run, it's 0.3, 0.4. So we had 0.1. And 
The problem with if sharps really go above one, that they become so visible that people flock into it. So in a way, in a long-term near efficient markets, you need sharp ratios not too high. So 0.5 is perfect, especially if you can combine them. And I fully agree with this notion of how much time do you get? Do you get the time to harvest the premiums? That's the difference between a backtest and living through performance. And yeah, that's that's a key insight that capturing factor premiums real life really requires character and persistence rather than just more IQ and better backtests. So we're going to be spending a lot of time in this podcast talking about conservative investing. I'm probably going to use a bunch of phrases interchangeably, low vol, defensive, conservative. They're not necessarily interchangeable, and we'll dig into that a little bit. But before we do the deep dive, can you maybe at a 30,000 foot level explain what is low volatility investing? Maybe you can highlight sort of the pertinent theoretical foundations and share some of the high level empirical results. Yeah, low volatility investing is basically buying securities which move less than the market, so which are less volatile, more stable, more defensive characters. And the opposite is more cyclical, speculative investing. Usually the market is split in value and growth. That's the Morningstar classification. Low vols makes a different split akin to credit investing where you have investment grade and high yields. So that's also how you can look at low-vol investing as a way investment-grade equities versus more high-yield equities risky. Now, the issue with low-vol investing, and that's why it has become so popular, is that low-volatility stocks outperform high-volatility stocks in the long run. And that is one big anomaly, one big puzzle. And basically, this is the question of my career. So I've spent many, many years on this theoretical academic, but also in practice, really getting my head around. So how can this be the case? So yeah, when I tell this to my mother, like, you know, there's low risk stocks, make more return, higher return than high risk stocks, then even she says, and she has no PhD in finance or CFA, she says, yeah, that cannot be true. It's too good to be true. And that's a puzzle. They call it an anomaly effective premium. And interestingly, also academically, it has been a bit ignored especially from Chicago school, you cannot call it a risk premium because the value premium, you can say it's compensation for risks one way or the other, size the same. With low vol, not because it's low risk. So it cannot be a risk premium. So it's really a step in the heart of efficient markets, capital asset pricing model. So yeah, it's also academically, it has been much less attention than like value and momentum investing. Yeah, that's fascinating. So that's why we give a bit more weight to it to compensate for the attention it should have. And in my case, I've written a couple of papers on it, also a book for layman investors, really to get this message out. And maybe I only stop when it's CFA material that all students know that low risk stocks earn high risk adjusted returns, which is a big puzzle. Where does the industry stand, maybe both practitioners and you can provide an academic thoughts as well as to why this anomaly seems to exist? Yeah, so the why is the great question. We've given this thought. If you summarize the literature, one prominent explanation is leverage, constraints, and aversion. This was already brought forward by Black, which means that if you buy low vol stocks, you get high risk-adjusted returns. But if you cannot lever up and you want to have a high return, then you buy into risky stocks basically to get your higher return, even if it's not fully compensated for the risk. So in that way, where you can explain why the risk-return relation is a bit flatter than it should be. However, it's not a full explanation because the relation is not too flat. It's really negative at a certain point, and you cannot explain that with leverage aversion, so you need more. Another one is more broader, that's benchmark constraints. So many investors do have benchmark constraints. And I witnessed it when I joined the industry. Tracking hours are huge relative performance. We talked about living through your underperformance, and that's also often relative performance. So high vol stocks do have a high tracking error, high relative risk. So that makes them very unattractive. So that's an explanation I like a lot. And then thirdly, there is a part of the market which is just speculative. They want to get rich quick and to get there, you need to buy more risky stocks with a positive scoop payoff, like lottery kind of payoffs. 
not only retail investors, but also agents. So in a principal agent setting where you don't own your own stocks, you also have a preference for volatility because it can make you a star analyst or a star mutual fund manager. And that's an option-like kind of payoff. So these three explanations, leverage, benchmarks, and a positive school, all explain why this is the case, why this anomaly exists. And the beauty about these explanations is that they're, they're all pretty rational. So it's not that you learn about it and that you then correct for your mistakes. Second is it's a very difficult arbitrage because if you want to arbitrage, you again have this leverage constraint, many of us. And that's the beauty that if you don't have this constraint and you know about it, you can exploit it. So it's also one of the most sustainable alphas out there, very difficult to arbitrage. I want to go from that sort of 30,000 foot view to get into the details and the nitty gritty right now. One of the things you often hear is the phrases low volatility and low beta used interchangeably. And it's no surprise to anyone who's in the industry that as soon as academic research in this area got published, there's all sorts of follow on research where people say, well, no, let's look at residual volatility or downside beta or semi variance. In your view, are these interchangeable measures or do they have distinct differences that practitioners looking to sort of exploit this anomaly need to be aware of? Yeah, so from 30,000 view, you can say they're exchangeable. They all measure defensiveness in a rough way. So if you're low, low vol, you also tend to have low beta, you also tend to have low residual vol and low semi-variance. So in that sense, you can say stop. But if you, if you go more into detail, you start investing in it or you start doing research and performance evaluation, then things start to matter. The difference between low vol and low beta is the way you treat correlations. So some stocks have a low beta, but a high volatility. So one good example of that is gold miners. Gold miners tend to be very volatile because of the gold price and its mining, but they do have a low beta because gold is often negatively correlated with equity markets. So that's a really good example for how there can be a difference between a low vol and a low beta stock. And when you start investing, it matters which approach you use. I believe you should use both. So you should both use volatility and beta because if you would focus on one, you could lean too much into gold miners with beta or just go out with low vol. And the truth is often in the middle. So there are more dimensions to risk. And if you want to predict risk, because that's the most important one, all those measures, they measure risk exposed. You want to go ex ante, you want to predict risk. And then we find that combining different dimensions of risk often gives you the best predictor for future risk. And then you basically take a combination of factors, not only beta and volatility, but you also add downside risk and also more credit-based risk factors. One of the things we also often hear is low volatility and quality get lumped together into a more sort of global defensive factor. Curious, do you think that low volatility subsumes quality? Does quality subsume low volatility or are they truly independent factors? Yeah, there is some overlap between the two, especially on the short side, because most academic studies, 99% of studies do long short whereas less than 10% is managed long-short. That's pretty interesting. If you look at the shorts of that to start there, they're very much overlapping. So junk stocks, so unprofitable ones, are often very volatile. If you look, look at the long legs, then you see that there's partial overlap. Some overlap, but not fully. So some quality stocks are low-vol, and some low-vol stocks are quality, so it's difficult to disentangle. But there is a difference. So the low-vol stocks, which are not extremely profitable are different than stocks who are and the other way around. If you do a head-to-head -head competition, they do have their own added value to each other. So that's why you, when you play low vol, you can also include profitability factors. But saying one captures the other completely, that's not the case. So there are distinct effects supplementing each other, especially on the long side. On the short side, they are more overlapping. I want to take an interesting turn with this conversation. I want to go maybe towards the realm of a little bit more practical, particularly for U.S. investors, because as low volatility investing came to market, a number of funds that look to exploit the anomaly also came to market. But as they will, they implemented the concept a little bit differently. So 
For example, in the US, there's a couple of ETFs, one of which sorts stocks on prior realized volatility and then takes the bottom quintile and, and weights those in proportion to their inverse vol. Another one takes a very similar approach, but does it within sectors and keeps the sector weights neutral to the benchmark. And this brings up an interesting question to me about the importance of selection versus allocation effects within low vol. What does your research tell you about the importance of those two effects? Yeah, so low volatility, if you do a low volatility screen, you do get certain tilts to some sectors, which are more defensive, like consumer staples or utilities. And then you get location effects because of consumer stocks do well. Our research shows that the alpha is present in both. So there's alpha coming from sector allocation effects, and there's alpha coming from stock selection. And if you go international, it even works on a country level as well. However, allocation effects are often very dominant in driving performance. So you can either shut them down, as you men- as one of the ETFs is doing, which you mentioned, but then you give up alpha, or you go for a middle way, where you have soft limits, where you allow some deviation. And that's what you see most active low-vol funds doing. So some limits. And then we adhere to the 80-20 rule. So 80% coming from bottom-up stock selection, 20% coming from allocation. There's a third ETF that's very popular that takes a minimum variance approach at the portfolio level. It does apply some constraints at the security and sector level, but it is trying to build that portfolio that exhibits min-vol, not necessarily pick the lowest-vol securities, which to your point earlier means that they could very well pick high-vol, uncorrelated securities that can cancel each other out. Do you think that this is a valid implementation of the low volatility phenomenon, or does the introduction of correlation confound the issue? Yeah, so from a 30,000 feet distance, it's okay. If you want to say, I want more than okay, I want the best, then I think with this approach, you tend to give too much weight to noise, because correlations are also more difficult to estimate. If you estimate them right, they still can give you quite some tilts to certain sectors. Like I said, gold miners are notorious. The question, whether you want to have that. Best is to have to use correlations as salt. If you use too much of it, it ruins the food. But some of it helps. And that's how you should treat correlations. So to some degree in the minimum variance approach, I would say it's too much salt. You alluded to this a little bit earlier about the difference between academic exploration through long shorts versus the practical implementation, which 90% of the time is long only. You actually wrote part of a study that looks at factors from an academic lens, but ignoring the short side. So I believe that the title of that paper was called When Equity Factors Drop Their Shorts. Kudos to you for a great title. What were to you the most important and surprising takeaways? Yeah, first, the surprising was that if you look at the literature, how little long-only studies there have been written, and it's all sort of one-month return, long-short, and then Fama French style. In a way, it's good that you have a standard, but in a way, it's not good because that, that's not how, in practice, money is invested. So that's the starting point. But then it became interesting that if you take this long-only perspective, what do you see? So when they drop their shorts, what do you see? And there has been quite a severe debate on yeah, value, whether value still adds value, whether there's alpha if you correct for other factors. And the same goes with quality versus low vol, the battle. And then we found that if you take a long-only perspective, this gives a different perspective. And also you come to different conclusions that yes, low volatility and quality are distinctive phenomena. And value is also stronger if you take a long-only perspective. And yeah, most investors are approaching value from a long-only perspective. So that's a pretty strong conclusion and also gives hope for most of the money managed because if the conclusion would have been otherwise, that would have been a big problem. Then you would have said to the 90% of the money, you're doing it incorrectly, you should go to long-short if you want to harvest those factor premiums. So in a way, it was a relief and also a good nuance to this debate, which is very much focused on the shorts often. When we talk about the low volatility anomaly, I think we have to address the elephant in the room, which is March 2020. I think a lot of investors 
those who were implementing the long only low vol approach were disappointed with the realized results through that period. From your vantage point, what happened? And do you think that the sort of ex post results were actually appropriately in line with the ex ante expectations? Yeah, so the start of 2020 was very interesting, a new decade. Lots of things could have happened. So risk means lots of things can happen, but more can happen than will happen. In the end, you're looking at one path. Start of 2020, one of the big risks was tech regulation, uh, wars maybe. Now it happened two years later. Anything, the end of globalization. But what did happen was a pandemic. And on top of that, lockdowns. And the lockdowns were really affecting the old economy. So retail, restaurants, those kind of typical defensive low-vol stocks. And in March 2020, those stocks didn't offer protection. So markets, US market went down about 19%. And those stocks also fell similarly. So no protection or very little. But the good thing is outside the US, it was a bit better. So Europe, Asia emerging, it was not that bad. But still, US is a big part of the global market. So it can be fully explained by the measures we took. So lockdowns, which really affected retail stock. And on top of that, because people were working from home, there was this big pull forward of expanded series on Netflix subscriptions, software, Zoom companies. So big tech basically profited. A bit similar to Y2K. So that was the millennium bug in 2000 when we were fearing that computers would crash. Also back then, the longer tech rally was fueled by this. And that's the same with big tech, was rallying. And then it just was fueled by this working from home and lots of investments on IT and expenditures on online stocks went through the roof. So that happens in 2020. Fully explainable strategy was doing what it's supposed to be doing. However, many investors were sort of negatively surprised. They thought it was a guaranteed reduction in losses, which obviously it's not the case. And then some investors turned their back. So you saw after 2020 that the popular ETFs in the low vol space, you saw that the number of stocks and the capital allocated to that went down significantly. So that's about 2022. It's basically when the boys separated from the men, you can say, because it was a bit crowded in 2016 when yeah, market up, low vol up, many investors flocked in, maybe for the wrong reasons. Well, maybe you can talk a little bit about that crowding period. I, I think it was Rob Arnott who wrote some pieces around value spreads within the low vol anomaly and said that they were at extended ranges and that it was crowded, that it was overvalued and that people should actually not be taking low vol tilts at that time. I believe Cliff Asnes fired back and said, you can't look at a value spread on an anomaly that has a turnover that's potentially much faster than the horizon over which that value spread would collapse. Curious as to your take, you sort of mentioned there, maybe it did seem to get a little bit crowded, but is valuation spread crowding a real risk to something like low vol investing? Yeah, it's just a risk for any strategy. So for example, now yeah, privates, ESG, everybody flocks into something. It's just good and not challenged. You should always be cautious. So in that sense, I like Arno uh, that you should be contrarian and have a value kind of approach. So also when we do low vol, we never do it single factor. Always take a look at the price you pay. If I buy a car, I also look at the price. If I buy low vol stock, look at the price. So back then in 16, yeah, the conservative equity strategies really started to diverge from uh, generic low vol, which became really expensive, whereas we include value factors to stay away from those expensive overcrowded positions. Because the point with over and undercrowding is how do you measure it? Because the number of stocks, number of shares doesn't go up. So we all own the market. So it's the only thing which how you can measure overcrowding is the price, so the valuation. So back then in 2016, I agreed with Arnaud. I also liked it when Cliff entered and you can take your popcorn as a quant and watch this incredible fight and it's you learn from it because they're using very good arguments because cliff also has a good point about that strategy is dynamic so you can move away from stocks if they become expensive they are now proved to be somewhat right on effects but also wrong that value itself didn't work because 
you can say yeah, that if you look through at all the anomalies through a value lens, basically you bring everything back to value, which is one factor, and that's not very diversified. So he was right and wrong at some at the same moments. And where I agree with and where we are today, and I, I think also for your listeners, interesting, moving forward, I think today we're undercrowded. And that's where Cliff, Roparnow, and I agree that we are undercrowded. Depends a bit how you measure it, but you can say like we're in the top decile of valuation spreads of low vol, but also value and momentum alike. Add to that the deep historical evidence, which shows that factor premiums are a feature of markets and not some coincidence or p-hacking. So yeah, nowadays you can enter factors and you don't have to worry too much about implementation because the alpha potential is so big that yeah, it doesn't come very close how you do it. Well, in 2016, when Arno warned, that was more important because then factor investing was really becoming very popular and crowded, which means some strategies became expensive. Some critics of low volatility investing have argue that there's a high degree of sensitivity to interest rates. Obviously, very relevant in 2022, arguably still very relevant today. Curious as to whether this is something you think holds water as a potential critique, and what happens if you actually try to control for that sensitivity and, and potentially neutralize it? Yeah, it's a good question. We agree. So low vol stocks have somewhat more interest rate risk a bit longer duration, one year to be specific. With our conservative strategies, we can mitigate some of that risk, half of it. But even in both cases, it can never fully explain the anomaly. So if the anomaly is like 3% alpha, then interest rate could explain up to 30 bips. So yes, but put it in perspective. Interestingly, the whole narrative changed because nowadays tech stocks are long duration for some reason. Five years ago, never nobody said that and now suddenly growth stocks are long duration and also if you look at short-term correlations that's what the market is pricing nowadays so you can look at nasdaq versus dow jones to see where the interest rate is going five years ago it was with low vol and real estate stocks as well so it's funny how yeah wall street can also be an echo chamber where everybody just echoes the narrative so we're a bit critical on that but for low vol we agree that it's partly the case they are more bond-like but the good thing is it doesn't explain the full anomaly and it's only like 10 to 20 bips, which is not much. Now, last year, so 2022, interest rates really went up and low vol stocks did a terrific job, so they outperformed by 10%, which made many people think that this doesn't hold anymore. However, we still think it does because it was also when markets went down. So there are two factors driving. So what's the market doing and what are rates doing? Because of the correlation swap. So correlations became positive suddenly. And that's in that sense, uh, low vol stocks were exactly doing what they're supposed to be doing. If you took the interest rate out, which we did partly, we also saw that in 2022, this also helped performance. Although then it was the difference between plus 10 or plus 9, for example. But still, it added. So nuanced view and a bit critical to the whole growth long duration narrative, which is now suddenly everywhere. And if you challenge that, then yeah, they look at you strangely. Let's stay on that theme for a second, because again, we, we mentioned that this is a dynamic strategy. It's not like you're buying securities and holding them for decades. There is turnover in low volatility. And, and maybe you can, in answering this question, address how much turnover you usually see. But if you have historically seen negative correlations between stocks and bonds, then it makes sense that a low vol stock would have some potential loading on interest rates because that would reduce the realized volatility of the security. What happens if stocks and bonds go into a persistent positive correlation period? Would we not potentially expect the reverse situation where all of a sudden you would try to potentially load on stocks that have little to no exposure to rates? Yeah, this is very correct. So there is some rhythm, some low cycle going through. So low vol nowadays loads a bit less on long duration stocks. But it's second order effect because also when you go back in history, so I like deep history going back 100 or even more years, you still see that despite these estimation periods, which are time varying, you still have this structural tilt towards more interest rate sensitive. So maybe we can address sort of the turnover 
question right on the nose because again we've mentioned that this is a dynamic strategy this is something that can change and adapt to the way market conditions change and adapt one of the ways i tend to look at factors though is that there is in theory an optimal turnover horizon where you're maximizing the alpha subject to the different transaction costs that you might be subject to that leads into sort of a natural rebalancing cycle can you comment on how you see that playing out for conservative and low volatility investing yeah so how much turnover do you need optimally to get efficient exposure to low vol so we did a meta study on all the empirical studies on low vol on this and then we found that you don't need to go beyond 25% to get efficient exposure. And we ask your manager if he needs more than 50%, why this is the case. And on top of that, with turnover, you get also path dependency. So you see many ETFs tracking an index, but this index is, can be arbitrary. So when it's rebalanced, so is it March, is it September? And then we come to a topic you really like. That's the rebalancing timing luck. It is very interesting. Also here, academics basically don't look at this. It's sort of implementation, whatever. And it can be huge. It can be huge preaching to the converted here. But yeah, we both did research on this. And that can also make or break a career and a track record of strategy. So you should be very careful about your turnover and momentum is also a case point. The momentum index, which is done brought forward by MSCI, is really path dependent. Yeah, if you buy this, you not, not only buy the momentum premium, you also buy lots of rebalancing luck, which is just random noise going through. So turnover is something very important to watch. Yeah, for listeners who don't know, Tim was one of the co-authors of one of my favorite papers ever, Fundamental Indexation, Rebalancing Assumptions and Performance. Not the sexiest title, I'll be honest. It took me a long time to find that. But this was published back in, I believe, 2010 and looked at Rob Arnott's Fundamental Indexing and asked the question, well, what happens if you change the date in which this index rebalanced? It was an index that was rebalancing once a year, I believe in March was the arbitrarily chosen schedule. What happened if you had done it December, June, September? And what you found in that paper was pretty substantial performance differences. Off the top of my head, I've read this paper so many times. I think it was in 2009, the index outperformed its benchmark by 10 percentage points if done in March and actually underperformed the benchmark if it had to rebalance in September, which is, I think, kind of mind blowing to think about. I don't have a particular comment here other than to say thank you for writing the paper. I hope more people go and download it. But was that a surprising result to you when you wrote the paper? Is that what you expected? And maybe how did it change how you think about managing portfolios in practice going forward? Yeah, so the sign didn't surprise us. We were expecting differences. But it would be that it would be this huge surprised us. Like you mentioned, 10% difference. In reality, you cannot tell your clients it's noise. 10% is not noise if you invest real money. And that's underlines that implementation should be really well thought of. And any possible noise you might encounter, please take that out. And we're also happy to see that this paper also influenced practice, that this Rafi index, I think a year later, changed and really mixed four different rebalancing periods into one, which makes great sense because then you get rid of this rebalancing noise or luck and truly give clients access to the, the value premium in this case. And I think that's very relevant and very important and often ignored by academics in their ivory towers who, who don't look at it. And it also falls back to staying in the game that this noise could push you out. And if you're out, you don't get your alphas anymore. And that's, if you want to finish first, you should first make sure you finish. And rebalancing luck can be something which pulls you out of the race. And that is the worst thing that can happen to you. Well, let's tie that back to the turnover you mentioned seeing in in the low volatility anomaly. You said you only need 25% turnover to effectively harvest this is that something then the presumption should be perhaps you get six and a quarter turnover 
per quarter, right? Or is this something that actually ends up looking much more lumpy over time? You might have very little turnover and then suddenly there's a big change in, in the market's perception of risk and you get a tremendous amount of turnover in a single quarter. Yeah, so 25 is long-term average. It moves between 20 and 30. Based on the rebalancing time, and like, it's good to spread this throughout the year and to do 2% a month, for example, again, one or three. That's most optimal. And also good to mention this is when you do single factor low volume. So if you add momentum, for example, or value, this might be a reason to say, hey, let's do 30 or 40. But if you pure want something defensive, why do more than 25%? Yeah. I want to take this global for a second. As a U.S. investor, and I have a lot of U.S. listeners, we have a massive domestic bias. Most of the low vol portfolios that we can access are U.S. low vol portfolios. But I want to think about this. If I want to build a global low volatility solution, how should I think about currency risk? Is it possible that the optimal global low volatility solution is actually like reference point specific to the investor? Or should we think about it from a neutralizing currency risk perspective? How does currency play into the solution? Yeah, it's a good one, especially for international investors. And like I said, I'm from the Netherlands. I can bike to a foreign country in a couple of hours. So currencies are important. So we separate it. So when you do stock selection, you tend to look at local stock volatility to see which stocks are more stable than others. But then it comes to portfolio construction and also your currency policy. Then the question is, should I hedge or not? So in that sense, we say that when you don't take currencies into account and when you have your inter international portfolio, do take it into account. And then usually hedging is a good idea. Of course, you should take a look at the carry. How expensive is your hedge? If you separate those decisions, you can get to the most optimal portfolio. Yeah, it's interesting to see how yeah, the US dominance of the past decade, it is anyone going for EM over the past decade was versus SAP got killed or international equities got killed. Like you say, if you're an active manager, can you survive? It's amazing how, how the US and US tech dominance has been. I think it's also a little bit of unchecked capitalism that like Trump could have curbed big tech. However, yeah, tech and US incorporated, they have joint interests. So strong Google, strong Microsoft is good for the US because they're US firms. So why would you take too much? And they're global firms. So yes, they hurt US consumers, but they also hurt European or Asian consumers. So that's not necessarily bad for the US. And you see now with the AI race, which is between Chinese government and US corporates. So then it's also good to have strong US firms. As an European, I'm like, yeah, what's up? So that has basically surprised markets that these profits run so big. They have so much market power. They are not curbs, not by a Democrat, nor by a Republican. And also so profitable and their network effects just go to the shareholder. That you saw that they just laid off a couple of people. You see with Twitter, you can lay off 80% of your people and still continue. Yeah, that means that there's so much moat and so much profit, and I think partly monopolistic profit. Yeah, that has driven this whole U.S. tech market, and made anybody taking a different position. Yeah, we really have to explain underperformance. Where we are now, yeah, that's very fascinating. So, what will the next decade look like? Well, definitely one of those unique periods in time when you look at the growth versus value performance dispersion, and to actually see for a large part of the last decade, the growth outperformance was actually justified. The earnings, the profitability was there. It wasn't actually a, just an expansion of, of multiples. It truly was, to your point, actually true economic growth in these large cap tech companies. Now, certainly seems like it's gotten well over its ski tips at this point. As you point out, regulatory risk looms large. We'll see what the next decade has to bring. But that actually circles us maybe in somewhat into my next question. So I want to talk about your book that you wrote. You mentioned you wrote a book that's maybe a bit more approachable for the layperson called High Returns from Low Risk, where you talk about the conservative portfolio. And you referenced this a little bit earlier, that you don't just buy low volatility stocks on their own. In the book, you actually propose taking value and momentum tilts. You do an initial low beta screen and then you take value and momentum tilts after. 
I want to ask you specifically about how you think about the interaction effects when you use low volatility as a primary sort versus, say, a secondary sort or as an input into a integrated multi-factor sort. Why use one approach over another? Do you prefer one approach over another? Yeah, so the book uh, I wrote four years ago for the layman, for my dad, to explain him what is quantum investing, how to make it simple, accessible, use metaphors and stories so that, yeah, you can read it in a couple of hours. It's available in bookstores, also in English, of course, Dutch, but also French, German, and Chinese. Also doing it in local languages to get really close to layman investors who not all of them read English. What we explained there is you shouldn't go low-vol, single-factor. So that's also what I do professionally. You shouldn't do things single-factor. You need the interaction of factors. So the pitfalls of low-vol investing is that it can become expensive, as we discussed in 2016. So that's why you need value as well. But also momentum is a great factor to include because otherwise you miss good up capture. So in the book, we propose to do it multi-factor. In the strategies we run, we do it multi-factor because there are just too many benefits of integrating those factors. The great thing about the book, how we explain it, is the simplicity. So as you say, we sort first on risk and then screen on income and sentiments or value and momentum, as you can call it, which makes it very clear that you're always in the low-risk part of the market. So that's why we do a double sort. In practice, that gives quite some turnover because you can have flip-flopping. It's a bit technical. So in a professional setting, we prefer to have Z-scores where you do an integrated approach instead of doing this slice and dice. Again, from a 30,000th distance, both approaches are similar. If you zoom in, you want to keep it simple, then you do a double sort. If you more professionally, then you do an integrated approach, which is then better because it saves turnover. You mentioned a little earlier that a lot of the academic research ascribes the low volatility premium arising from the low beta phenomenon and the bias against leverage or lottery demand phenomenon, all sort of behavioral sources of the anomaly. Given that it is behavioral, do you think that this is something that can and risks eventually be being completely arbitraged away? Yeah, so it's a good one. When we say behavior, I think that all behavior is rational. And that's interesting because some people say, ah, if it's behavior, it's irrational. I think we all make conscious decisions. So if you buy a lottery ticket, you buy hope. It's rational. I wouldn't say you're... Or if you buy a stock, which is very volatile, it might even have a negative return. Yeah, it's still rational. You're maximizing your utility, which is maybe different than maximizing your sharp. These are not the same. So... The beauty is with low vol is that we understand why people are taking different positions. They have a different objective, different utility function, and they're perfectly rational. It's behavior. And if you say, yeah, I don't have constraints. I don't uh, want to gamble with my money. I'm a fiduciary duty. You have a different objective. And then you act in the same market. And then you can have, at the same time, get your premiums, have a high sharp, be happy, because that's what you want to have capital growth, lower risk, and at the same time, other market participants are also happy. And that's the beauty of the marketplace, that if you trade, there is always a win-win, otherwise you don't trade. So the whole idea of CAPM and efficient markets is that there is one representative agent. Yeah, that's not correct. Of course, that's too much simplification. And this behavior which we observe, which is in that sense also very predictable, it's rational will coexist with some people behaving more risk-averse. And those people have a long-term view, and they can make their alpha. So in that sense, a sharp ratio of 0.3, 0.5 can be very sustainable because yeah, there are different kind of behaviors in the same marketplace at the same time. On the topic of risk aversion, back in 2013, you co-authored a, a rather heady paper titled Violations of Cumulative Prospect Theory in Mixed Gambles with Moderate Probabilities. It's a mouthful to say. At the risk of sort of diluting the work too far, my core takeaway was that prospect theory, which sort of has been the growing darling of behavioral finance for the last decade or so, is actually really only supported 
when experiments are performed with really extreme examples, not necessarily supported with more moderated examples. Why do you think this takeaway is really important? And what are the implications for asset pricing theory? Yeah, so prospect theory has been the darling for decades, basically wanting to replace utility theory. And the key difference is between the two is beliefs and expectations. And what in this paper we did is in the management science, we showed that classic utility theory is not that bad. It's pretty good. It can explain our behavior in a rational way. So in the expectations framework. And the reason why prospect theory sometimes wins in experiments is if the experiments are really extreme. And most real life examples are not that extreme. So we basically made a case for expected utility theory. And also that's what I said about rational behavior. So actually we're we're more rational in that sense than a prospect theory wants us to believe. Of course, we have biases and some of them are clearly irrational, but if it comes to more day-to-day decisions, yeah, our expectations are pretty rational. And it's more of a matter how bad do you think a loss feels instead of that you overestimate chance of a loss. These two are difficult to disentangle. And in this experiment, we made it very clear that yeah, many of those academic studies basically create situations which are not really realistic and thereby basically pushing expected utility theory back and making a case for prospect theory, which for markets is less strong to aggregate because prospect theory is nice to describe individual behavior in very hypothetical or extreme conditions but it doesn't aggregate well. And then it's just storytelling. So for each anomaly, you have a story and it doesn't really help you to better understand markets, whereas expected utility theory and rational expectations are much more powerful to do that. Can you explain what you mean by utility theory, classic utility theory aggregates well, but prospect theory doesn't? Yeah, maybe an analogy could be like Newton's laws. And they describe an apple falling from a tree. But on an individual level, if you go to a subatom level, you need quantum theory, which is a bit more complex and allows to describe behavior at, at a very small level. It's a bit with finance as well, that behavioral finance can go really to atomic level. But when you aggregate it, it doesn't, it cannot predict how an apple falls from a tree. And so that's where it stops. And if you take expected utility theory, it's like Newton's classic laws. It works good on a normal level, a bit in some cases, not so good on an individual micro level. But if you have to choose, then yeah, utility theory is a good workhorse still for asset pricing. So I'm a real sucker for taking philosophical examples to sort of logical extremes that define where edge cases exist. And on our pre-call, you said, if the market were purely efficient, nobody would ever trade which I thought was a really interesting concept. And I was hoping you could pull on that thread for me and and walk me through the logic. Yeah, then it gets a bit philosophical because this representative agent, it's a one period model, should describe then this whole dynamics of markets we all trade. One thing we know is that we trade way too much. Odin has done really great studies on that and how much trading is going on. Trading also is an alpha signal for anybody active. So it's an agency problem. As an agent, you're an active investor. You should trade because people pay you money to take active positions. So there are lots of incentives, again, rational behavior to trade, to show you know what you're doing. Actively doing nothing is very difficult. So we know we trade too much. And then the question is, how much trading should be going on? And then in a very efficient market, the price discovery, so where the marginal buyer and seller determine the price, that could be just one transaction, very, very little, that's very extreme. And then you can round it up to say, there will be no trading round it. So very, very limited. So that means that basically everybody could go passive. And then, yeah, just you and me, Corey, we would then determine the prices of the S&P 500. And that's it. And then you can say there's no trading. I think we're way too far on the active space. I think the average turnover is above 100%. And that's really a tax on economies. Also having intraday liquidity with all the bid-ask spreads done by ETFs, it's a really big drag. And I think if regulators would say there's only one one moment of trading at the close, everything nets, 
I think that would be a huge saver for U.S. citizens. I think it will save tens of billions at the cost of intraday liquidity. But yeah, that you have price discovery throughout the day. And what's the worth of that in, in terms of GDP and efficient capital allocation? So I think having some more curb on trading would be a net benefit for society. Of course, brokers would hate it and HFTs couldn't make money anymore. But So that's a bit philosophical. So we should trade less and in extreme there is even no trading anymore except you and me, maybe, where we could settle everything. It reminds me of an old Saturday Night Live skit. I think it was a weekend update where those fake news anchors are presenting the news and the news anchor said something to the effect of, and on Wall Street, no shares changed hands today. Everyone finally has what they want. And I was like, it's like, it's a funny way to put it. So, all right, well, moving on, I want to talk about a little bit about all the research you've done cumulatively, you have touched on research in the factor space and the utility space. You've been publishing research for 15 plus years. And one of the things I love to ask people who have been publishing research for that long is which views of yours that you've long held have become more entrenched because of the research? And what are the biggest things you've changed your mind on? Yeah, one thing I changed my mind is on schooners preference. So when I started my PhD, I thought that if you really love this positive school, this can explain a lot, like why growth stocks underperform, high fall, etc. But then I found out that in equilibrium, that this doesn't add up. So if you like a positive school, you don't buy all the lottery tickets because you will get the million dollar, but you lose money. So if you love a, school, a positive school, you don't diversify. If you don't diversify, the market is not efficient. And that was for me sort of a, a big, changer and it basically closed the whole literature so you still see papers coming out about co-schooners and but it's simply not true because the market is not efficient if you like a positive school you buy a handful of stocks that's it you don't buy the market so that's the market is inefficient instead of efficient from that perspective so that was really a changer yeah, other things what struck me was this tracking error so i did a phd in finance i studied downside risk I joined the industry and I was like, wow, benchmark relative risk. They call it an error. Well, it's a deviation. Yeah, that struck me. And also that me, gave me a complete different view on risk and also how risk is perceived, whereas it lacks a theoretical foundation. So utility theory, as we discussed, there's no moral first principle why you should dislike relative performance. And that's fascinating finding as well. Curious as to your thoughts, what you find most exciting going forward. A lot of my conversations about sort of the academic quant factor space, there really hasn't been a tremendous amount of true, I'm going to use air quotes here for those that are listening, innovation over the last decade. There's been a lot of education to the point of we've been able to look at pre-sample data or contemporaneous out-of-sample data from different countries, apply a lot of the same factors to maybe different asset classes to try to reprove whether we think these things actually do exist. But the techniques themselves maybe haven't changed tremendously on the sort of academic factor front. What are you most excited about in the quant research space going forward? Yeah, so again, from a high-level distance, you can say what happened since end of the 90s with Robert Hogan, especially, if you would have read his paper, he basically discusses the main factors like quality, level, value, momentum, the big four. What happened since then, from that level, not so much. One of the things that excites me is to roll that through to other markets, so outside US equities, international, EM, corporate bonds. That's fascinating. And then also into commodities and FX. So that's one. Second is a behavioral finance is not only a lens to look at why those factors come through, but also a mirror, like clients in quant strategies are also human. Quants are human. They, looking at underperformance can be really tough. And learning how to get this behavioral finance to also be able to collect those premiums, that's going to be fascinating. So maybe you can think of fund structures where you basically acknowledge your own failures, where you put up front a structure where you enforce yourself to harvest those factor premiums. A bit of a similar setup as private equity, for example, where you just lock up your money and be sure that you will be around when those factors can be harvested. 
I think that's something I'm fascinated about. It's still very infancy. In the US, you have some of the fitness subscriptions where you pay up front big time, and each time you go, you get money back. So from a classical point of view, that's very irrational. It's you and me now that it's very rational. Because with Christmas, you think I'm going to work out a lot. And then, of course, when it happens, you don't feel like it. I think you can apply the same principle in investing and you should. I don't know parties doing that already. Professionally, institutional money, sometimes you can have longer fee structures where you have this penalty if you get out. So you, you see a bit there, but really taking it to the level of the fitness club and getting a penalty when you get out or when you don't stick to your guns. Yeah, that's really fascinating because over the past five years, I've seen this higher and higher cycle being very dominant and affecting alpha more than when you do volatility or beta or those kind of things. So that's the big picture. Yeah, on the more smaller picture, of course, I still fight for each BIP. So any innovation going on on machine learning, big data, we take it because that's also your fiduciary duty, just to keep it pushing the, the frontier in alpha and new signals and new variables. I was expecting you to say something along the lines of machine learning. I think most quants are pretty excited about I'm that area. I love, yeah. I love the idea of innovating in structure to deal with behavioral issues. But maybe you can talk a little bit more about machine learning as it applies to conservative investing, where you think some of the more interesting applications might lie. Yeah. So with machine learning, it's, of course, the talk nowadays, and it's fascinating, especially since it allows for interaction effects and nonlinearities. Most of the literature now coming out is predicting return. And interestingly, not so much is going into risk. That's always nice as a contrarian where you use these techniques and you just change the objective. We found some really cool results where allowing for nonlinearities helps you to better predict risk. It's also intuitive that if you take leverage, then up to a certain point, it doesn't really matter. But if leverage gets too high, then you should really watch out. It's like a cliff. Now, most models are linear, linearly structured. So machine learning does help to predict distress risk and downside risk better than classic linear models. And that's fascinating and excites me because yeah, that gives you an edge on top of more simple straightforward ways to predict risk with volatility or, or beta. Do you think, you know, again, with the idea that a lot of factor portfolios built around the conservative investing idea use sort of historical looking realized volatility, that just being sort of an output, the market's output of all these other fundamental inputs, do you think the future of conservative investing could be to outright ignore things like realized volatility and realized beta and look at more fundamental non-linear drivers of risk? Yeah. So in the past decades, so we've innovated on predicting risk, including distress risk, measures most lately adding machine learning. And then when you get excited, you think, hey, let's throw the backward looking statistical, just dish it all together and forget about it. And then again, the truth is often in the middle. There is information in those historical price movements which is an indication for investors doing this price discovery. And the more investors disagree and the more uncertainty there is, the more alpha opportunity there is also because all the bias is about being too optimistic, overconfidence, all those kinds of things then tend to happen more and going into more the level area is more the safe bet. So it could be that this happens, what you say, that uh, more fundamental and more forward-looking and more other data-driven approaches are better than historical full and beta, then they could be driven out. But so far, they have always been a good main staple in this mix of risk dimensions. Speaking of forward-looking, one of the easiest forward-looking markets for risk you might look at is the options market. And it's something we haven't talked about yet. Can you comment a little bit maybe on the use of implied volatility versus realized volatility and the potential benefits or limits to using that as a way to screen for low volatility securities. Yeah, that's good. One. So implied fall is more forward-looking. You don't have to rely on backwards realizations. There is some value in implied volatility, but it's spent by historical volatility. It seems to be the implied volatility market is a bit more efficient than the realized volatility. Then second to that, you have less breadth, so you don't have full coverage for all stocks you want to invest in. 
But if you then move to the credit market, where you have credit defaults, swaps, and uh, credit spreads, that's very interesting that those investors really care about downside risk because your coupon is the, the maximum return you can get. So it's more clean. And then this information on that market can be very effectively used in the equity market. And that's more powerful than implied volatilities. So credit spreads beat implied falls. Again, they're the same question. Could you then forget about volatility and beta and only use credit spreads? Answer is again, no. They all add to each other and they complement each other. One of the areas I can imagine credit spreads being a particularly difficult data set to work with is that the term of which the bonds are issued by these different companies could be very different, right? You could have Disney doing a 20-year bond and you could have some historically junky energy company doing a, a five-year high-yield bond. How do you think about normalizing for the different terms? Yeah, so credit default swaps are normalized. So that's where you can then rely on so that you don't get this bias. So fair point. That was a much easier answer than I thought it would be. Well, look, Pim, this has been a fantastic conversation. We're coming towards the end here, and I'm asking the same question to every guest at the end of the season, and it relates to the cover art that we're creating for each episode. As you know, I ask you to select a tarot card. Again, none of the guests so far have known anything about tarot, which has made this a particularly fun exercise. I didn't know anything about tarot going into this. And you actually chose a card that is not part of the standard tarot deck. So it took me a little while to figure out what card you were talking about. But the card you chose was Hope. And I was wondering what drew you to that specific card. Yeah, so I like philosophy. And uh, you have the cardinal uh, virtues. And then you've got the, the Christian virtues on top of that. So that brings us to the seven virtues, which is faith, hope, and love. Of those three, so I like hope a lot. Hope is something different than being optimist. Hope is something you aspire. And in a way, it's a sort of forgotten and under-acknowledged virtue, which I think yeah, needs more prominence. So that's why I picked it. Also, in today's environment, you see lots of the, the, the public debate being less about hope. Uh, it's becoming a bit you know, like culture wars, but also on climate, lots of pessimism. Like people thinking, yeah, uh, things will get worse. I'm fine, but the world is going down. I think hope is a totally different message. And it's also a virtue. So it's something you should do. It's something you should train and you should share. So that's why I picked it. It's being a contrarian, like in investing. I also picked one of the virtues, which people are le least familiar with. At least if I look in my culture around me, like hope, yeah, hope. It's almost like a sign of weakness. Like, yeah, I don't know anymore. I just hope. I just hope it gets. No, it's something much more deeper when you think about it. And also when it comes to investing, when actors may be disappointing here or there. Also, hope is more than simple, like, yeah, let's hope. It's a conviction, which I think everybody should be aware of. Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. Thanks.